Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I'm Fong Nguyen, the author of the novel Bronze Drum. I also teach at the University of Missouri, where I'm the Miller Family Endowed Chair in Literature and Writing. I've written uh, five books, which include three novels and two short story collections, and my individual stories have appeared in uh, more than 50 national literary journals across the country. Um, I've also edited some volumes, too. Thank you. Thank you for coming on, Fong. Thanks for having me. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you nowadays? Um, I think that nowadays is really key, right? Because it sort of evolves and changes throughout one's life. And um, I think right now it means uh, pride and belonging to a thousands year old culture. Uh, one that, you know, in the relatively recent history is being discovered and better known throughout the world. You know, uh, I finished bronze drum over the weekend. And one thing that I kept thinking about over and over and over again is how close we were the Vietnamese come to extinction. Yeah. Yeah. With all of these invaders and all of these people trying to take over Vietnam, it's, it's really miraculous that we have become and, and, and have remained here on earth. Yeah, that's that's an extraordinary way to put it. I hadn't hadn't thought about it in exactly those terms, but uh, but you're right. I mean the the um, punitive nature of the um, you know Ma Yuan's campaign it it could have led to something far more severe than uh, what we had, which was already uh, oppressive enough to the um, the Lac Viet, uh people at the time. Uh, and it could have not just endured for as long as it had, but it could have remained and it could have led to, as you say, a kind of extinction. If this book was read to me when I was seven or 10 years old, I think it would have had a profound difference on my psychology up because yeah. of the pride that it instills in young women, young men after reading it. And, you know, this is something that 
re relatively very old, obviously very old tale in Vietnamese culture, but in Vietnamese American culture, I mean, most of us probably have heard a little bit about the Chung sisters, yeah, yeah. but not to the extent of yeah. how you've painted the picture, the story. Yeah, it's it, it was very meaningful to me growing up. Um, I it's not as though my father was telling me the story of the Chung sisters as a way of instilling Vietnamese culture in in me and my brothers, but rather it was just one of his favorite stories. So you know he would also tell the story of uh, Journey to the West, you know the Monkey King story, and he would tell the story of the. Um, three kingdoms, and he would tell the story sometimes of, you know, uh, the Fable de Font La Fontaine, and and so it was just kind of one of his go-to stories, and the consequence of that is it became part of my canon of characters and stories, and um, and then I experienced some frustration when I would go to school and people wouldn't know the same characters and stories that I knew and uh, then went to college and my professors didn't even know um, who these characters were and who the, about their story. And so, um, you know, part of my motivation for writing it is, as you say, you know, to, to be able to read about these, these characters and to take pride in those examples. What did your dad do? What was his My profession? dad, he was a chemical researcher for Johnson and Johnson for about 35 years. Um, so he uh, uh, came to the United States on scholarship in 1962 and uh, went to the University of Montana, sorry, London Montana State University in Bozeman, um, got his PhD in chemistry at University of Madison, University of Wisconsin in Madison, where he met my mother, um, who was studying um, uh, languages and linguistics. And, uh, and then soon after that, he went to work for Johnson & Johnson and did that until he retired. Did he ever have a artistic sort of bent or streak or sort of, you know, this, like, you know, he's like a nine to five Johnson Johnson, but wanted to be an artist kind of deal. Yeah, no, no, it was, he, I, I would say he has a artistic streak, but he pushes it pretty deep down. Right? I mean, mm -hmm. he, he loves stories and he, um, and I, he, he, I've seen only like two of his drawings and they're uh, they're very stylized and very interesting looking. So I think he he does have that. But he he you know he's had to be uh, you know a chemist and you know his, his whole life. And um, in retirement, he's become a very different person. But he still hasn't really pursued any artistic endeavors. He's more um, uh, been interested in you know meditation, exercise, and that kind of thing. You know, for a lay person like me, you know, I've, I've been out of, I've never was really in the academic world or, you know, paid yeah, attention yeah. to books until I really got involved in this podcast. And before then, though, I've always like read about singers, you know, mainstream singers, and I always wondered what their parents did and how that influenced and inspired them. And I bring that up because when I think about somebody like you, and me, uh, I've never heard of you until the bronze drum, right? right? But you've been doing this for a long time. You've been thinking about stories. You've been thinking about the Vietnamese culture way yeah. before the book comes out. I mean, I'm sure decades before. And what blows yeah, yeah. my mind is there's a lot of people like you in the Vietnamese world uh, across yeah. the globe. And it's amazing to see that 
your mind exists and where it comes from, how it's developed to become somebody like you, uh, whether it's from Missouri or Connecticut. Yeah. And just, I'm so grateful that somebody like you wrote a book like this. And, you know, like I told you earlier, now we want more, yeah. we want more of this stuff. Um, you know, you've done the Jung sisters and now is there any way that we can expect more of this type of material to, to show up? Uh, well, thank you, first of all, uh, for saying that. And um, I envision this book as uh, the beginning of dialogue, the beginning of conversation, not as any kind of definitive version, because it's my interpretation of this, their story. And um, I would love to see more books uh, about the Chung sisters and not just about the Chung sisters, but uh, you know, about uh, Bachu or about uh, Le Loi or any, you know, so many other, um, you know, Vietnamese legends and stories that incorporate both history and myth. Um, it's a fascinating kind of territory to explore in literature and, uh, you know, maybe someday in film and television. Um, and so I, I don't have any, um, uh, presumption that I'm going to take up that burden myself, but I hope that, um, people continue to delve in the same territory and come up with new discoveries. Do you consume a lot of, uh, comic books or, you know, watch Marvel movies, uh, as you were coming up? Um, I did. I read, I read a lot of comic books as I was coming up. I, um, uh, let's see. Um, I, you know, I read a lot of fantasy books too. Um, and it wasn't until, um, like late high school and early college that I, uh, became interested in, you know, literature with a capital L, right. This sort of, sort of, um, yeah you know, high culture literature and stuff like that. And, uh, but I think I still have that, uh, that the genre, the, the beating heart of that in, in my, uh, in my soul. And, and, um, uh, I, I, it was sometimes I've seen bronze drum shelved as historical fantasy and that doesn't bother me at all. I think it's sort of, um, uh, the, 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 in fact, when I was researching it, um, there are many occasions where the, you know, the national myth, the story of Vietnam, of, of the Chung sisters, as it's told in Vietnam, contrasted with the contemporaneous historical version. And, and nine times out of 10, I would select the uh, Vietnamese mythic version as opposed to the, um, the version given to us by the victors, by Ma Yuan and, and Zilk. Now, when you were coming up, where what other sort of things did you think that you were going to be doing as you got older as an adult? Um, that's a great question. I, um, I, you know, I think I was of a generation that didn't ha have as clear of a sense of professional destiny as let's say my children's generation. So my children all knew or seemed to know what they want to do at a very young age professionally. Um, so like my, my oldest son is now in graduate school for mathematics and he has wanted to be a mathematician since he was in the sixth grade. Um, my middle son is, uh, starting college, uh, planning to study linguistics and up until college. And even after I, I just, 
I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know what I wanted to do for money, you know? Um, and uh, so I think it was, that was more accepted in my generation where, um, you know, you go to college and you're, you can have the liberal arts experience without being uh, pressured to pick, you know, what you're going to study right away. I mean, it, it kind of helped that my oldest brother uh, was an academic star and mm -hmm. is working at Google now and, you know, succeeded on those terms. So there was less pressure on me to succeed on the same terms, I think. Um, but uh, I think when I envisioned my future, I probably pictured some music involved, maybe some art, something artistic, but I didn't necessarily know that I was going to be um, building my life around writing. Wow. So I, I just have to comment. Um, when you said my children, when you first started with that answer, yeah. I was like, what do you mean? You're, you're, my, you're like, I was thinking yeah. you're much younger than me. right? Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, what do you mean my children? And, and, you know, and you started to get into like this historical side. Like I was thinking, oh, you're five-year-old kid. Right, I right. can't believe you have children that old because you, I thought yeah. you were in your thirties. And... No, no, I, I know. I, I, my, my kids, I, I had children, you know, pretty young, but um, I'm not, I'm not very young myself. <laughs> so, I'm 44. So that's not, not right? too old. 44. Wow. Amazing. You look great. Um, so as, as uh, you're, you're going along and it takes you time to kind of like figure this stuff out, um, at what point do you you're like okay I'm I'm gonna start putting you know pen to paper and I'm gonna go into this yeah with this particular project you mean no no with your writing career oh writing in general oh so um, so I have um, kind of a little origin story that I tell about how I decided that I was going to commit myself to writing and it's the year I took off from college I went to Bard College, uh, which is, you know, kind of an elite private school, and I was not prepared for it. So I took a year off. I met my future wife, Sarah, there, and we um, lived in a cottage in Connecticut with no heat or hot water. Wow. And um, then we uh, worked at a waste paper company as assistants to the assistant accountant, um, doing data entry on this, um, you know, these old CRT screens with the green lettering and the windowless basement office. And, uh, it was miserable. And so as a kind of spiritual survival, I needed to wander and I would go through the streets of New Haven. And sometimes, you know, there'd be a building that's open, like the co-op or something, I'd walk into it. And I went into a used bookstore. And um, at random, picked out a book, uh, which turned out to be Marcel Proust's Remembrance of Things Past, translated by uh, C. Scott Moncrieff. And um, for the first time, and maybe only time in my life, time just elapsed. Like I had no sense of time passing, and suddenly the shop was closing, and um, they uh, needed me to either buy the book or get out. And I bought the book and I, you know, it's a, it's a massive volume and I carried around with me for a year. I was a very slow reader. And um, uh, he just did impossible things with language, things even in translation, you know, because the original is in French. And uh, I wanted to do a little bit of that impossible, you know, and, and um, 
so it inspired me to uh, commit myself to writing. And I, I didn't have any awareness of Proust as like being like people think that Proust is this like big pretentious kind of academic um, name. But uh, at the time, it, I was just enamored of the sentences and, and didn't think of it as his reputation or anything. I just thought of it on the level of the um, of the language and um, found it to be so stirring and moving and beautiful and um, articulate. You know, when I read and and listen to words, um, sometimes or most times there's just standard descriptions, things that are just being said to kind of like paint the, the, the idea. Yeah. Your, and I'm trying my best to explain this because I'm not an academic, but yeah. when you say um, you wanted to do um, the impossible with words, mm. I, I, think about the bronze drum and I think about Viet Thanh Nguyen, mm -hmm. the kind of writing um, that's for me impossible and, and, and quality where it shines is when it's ideas that seem so familiar, but is put in a totally different angle and a different light that yeah. you go, what the, you just get sucked in because it's just a, a completely radically different way of seeing uh, something that's very familiar, but in a very different way or in a tone that um, you, 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 it's like it's existed for all of eternity, but then yeah, this yeah. is so fresh to hear the first time. And I feel like that's what I kept hearing over and over in the bronze drum. That's amazing to hear. I, I feel that way uh, reading Viet Thanh Nguyen is that, yes. the, that I, I didn't know that I knew that until I read it. You know, it was like it has always been there. And, yeah. and yeah, so um so it's wonderful to hear that that uh, a reader can have that experience with bronze drum as well yeah yeah um and then you know you have to do so much other acrobatics with you know story design and you know pacing and keeping up trying to make it all balanced but then on top of that there's this sort of in, the impossible with with words and I, it's beautiful thank you yeah. um, so i um wanted to to talk about um, the artistic license that's uh, infused in the bronze drum. Um, yeah. th there's probably a skeletal version that exists throughout, you know, the history of the the Jung sisters. Um, how did you sort of mitigate and balance the the amount of of your artistic infusion into the the book? Yeah. Um, it was uh, a long road and it was frustrating at first because I thrive on information as a writer. I need to, you know, the more the better, um, the more uh, details already exist within the story, the better. Um, and I was working with a um, scholar who is an anthropological archeologist at University of Wisconsin named Namsi Kim. And um, he, I uh, wrote the book, uh, The Origins of Ancient Vietnam. And um, uh, working with him, uh, I learned, um, you know, some very important things which I brought to bear on the story, but I also learned how little is known about so many things mm. in terms of, you know, the medicinal system of the time, the calendrial system of the time, like all the material culture stuff, like, you know, that is, is you know, is good. But um, the stuff that is immaterial, 
uh, was much harder to um, figure out because so little is known. And so I was frustrated by that for a long time. And then I kept hearing from fellow writers like that should be liberating. You should be able to, you know, realize you can do anything then, you know, and um, eventually I came around to that understanding that having that license was a benefit rather than a drawback. Wow. And, um, uh, and there are, you know, so there are key deviations from the history. So there's, you know, a lot of things are mentioned that would not have existed 2000 years ago. The um, Alzai, the Nonla, the um, uh, water puppetry, the, you know, um, apparently they wouldn't have had elephants and, and war elephants at the time. Um, so all those are sort of important enough to the pop culture version of the Chung sisters that I felt like I needed to include them, um, despite the fact that they deviated from history. And in, in terms of deviations from the, um, the sort of national myth of the Chung sisters in Vietnam, um, that uh, was, you know, more for narrative purposes. So for example, in the attack on the palace, um, the Chung sisters themselves weren't there historically uh, when uh, their father and Tisak were killed. Um, but it was important because the story is kind of told through their perspective and, and, and for them to be there in order to witness it worked much better dramatically than right. um, to have, have them absent. So there are, you know, most of the times where I was choosing between history and myth, I chose myth because it was more interesting. And most of the times between myth and invention, those times where I chose invention were times when it, it couldn't work dramatically the other way. God, what a wonderful ex I feel so privileged to sit here and ask you that and hear that response, you know, oh, wow. thank you. Be because I, I, I'm, I'm, it, the lines are blurred because I'm not, uh, a, I'm not a historian. I, I don't know what's yeah. fact and fiction, fiction, but it all works. Yeah. It works well. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. And, and um, I, my hope is that, as I said, um, it begins a dialogue, it begins a conversation and people become more interested in the Chung sisters as a result. I, my hope is that people don't receive this as a work of history exclusively, but as um, a, you know, a historical fiction with an emphasis on the fiction side of things. In the uh, acknowledgments at the end of the book, I mentioned that my father wants the readers to know that this is a work of fiction. And he said that many times as he was, uh, as I was talking to him about it, I was, uh, as he was reading it, he's like, just make sure that people know this is a work of fiction. I said, well, you know, it says novel in the front and it's shelved in the fiction section. He's like, still just make sure that they know it's a work of fiction. So um, it's important. Yeah. And another thing that stood out for me was the sort of the family infrastructure or the way that, you know, daughters respond to their dad. And, you know, it, it feels like sort of like a, you know, modern way uh, of, of painting these uh, sisters, because, you know, I, I can't imagine 2000 years ago, like any yeah. <laughs> parent or daughters would talk and converse with their parents in, in that kind of in way. way. Yeah. So it, it, I was talking to a historian, uh, Minsu Kang, who's um, at the U University of Missouri, St. Louis, and he asked the question of, um, you know, how do you balance the modernizing with the, you know, delving into the historical when 
if we if I tried to render exactly the historical way that they spoke, first of all, there's no way for me to know that. Right. And second of all, it would be incomprehensible to the modern reader. Right. Right. And um, so that it's inevitable that there's going to be a kind of modernizing um, what, but you know, what people tend to take notice of is and be surprised by is the differences from uh, between, you know, uh, the, you know, a, a culture that did not have a traditional family structure and, you know, a modern kind of nuclear family unit kind of thing. Jung, Jungi's response to her mother um, after the gardener's son um, and going out to sort of be her own woman was a very, uh, was very blown away by that take. Uh, yeah, yeah. How, how did you come up with that idea? Um, so one of the things that the that I recall reading about uh, the Chong sisters is that uh, Chong Chak was more interested in military strategy and Chong Yi was more of a warrior. And to me, that seemed to imply a whole host of other contrasts in their sibling relationship. And so um, I saw Yi as having possessing a certain unquenchable fire, right? And um, part of that was inevitably going to inform her relationship to her parents. And um, the fact that she was an aristocrat perhaps enabled her to be more rebellious than she otherwise would have been. But uh, it's also at a time where these things are still being negotiated, where the family itself is still being negotiated because the influence of Confucianism is only you know, 100 years old. And um, uh, there's still these very uh, traditional um, uh, ways of viewing things and of experiencing the world, which contradict it. Yeah, the, the way a modern reader like me related to the two sisters is uh, uh, whenever you were going to one voice or the other voice or description of, of either sister, I took upon it. I, I imagined myself as being, oh, the rebel, the freedom, you know, the, the, yeah. the thrill seeker, the adventure seeker. Oh, wait, I also have a very uh, strategic side. I also have a very calm. You, so yeah, yeah. it sort of allowed me to kind of relate in a way that you know we have both sides of this in in each yeah person. that's great i'm really glad to hear that because i i find for myself sometimes i if i read a book with two focal characters i side with one or the other and it's hard to relate to both especially when there's such strong contrast between them so I'm glad that that was your experience. I hope that that is readers experience that they identify strongly with both Chung Chak and Chung Yi as opposed to just saying yeah. one, one or the other. Yeah. Well the, well, the thing is they're both heroic, right? So you, I mean, yeah. me as a young, you know, in my mind, I'm like, I want to be a hero just like Chung Chak or Chung Yi, right? Like yeah. I want to be both of them. And so every time one of them pops up and the story's focused on that sister, I'm like, oh my God, I I'm, I want to be that person. I, my my young child boy inside me, yeah, yeah, saying that I want to be that. I want to be that. So it balances out, sort of, it rounds out the the relationship that I have with with the reading. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. I, I think that that uh, you know, if you can read with that the 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 mind of that and the perspective of that inner child, that's wonderful. Yeah. Anytime that happens. Why this story and not? 
like the 10 other ones that Vietnam has? Yeah. So, um, I, you know, uh, I grew up with, um, this being the main story because there was the story that my father was most interested in. Right. So I knew about, uh, some other legends, but I didn't know them as deeply or care about them as much because they weren't told to me as often and weren't told to me with such, um, a sort of loving care, you know? Um, so in some ways it was just inevitable that I was going to, um, write, uh, the story of the Chunk sisters, as opposed to any variety, any, any other story, but also there's so many little, um, stories within the story, which are so wonderful, like the, um, hunting of the tiger, the skinning of the tiger, and then writing their, their version of the declaration of independence, right on the skin of the tiger. No I, you know, I didn't make that up, right. That's the part of their story. And the, uh, Feng Chen, uh, who, uh, you know, uh, gives birth on the battlefield, slings the baby into the quiver and keeps on fighting. Um, you know, it's, that's just sheer badassery. Yeah. Um, and, uh, there's so many stories throughout the book that, um, I was just eagerly awaiting writing them because I've for so long, um, enjoyed hearing about them. You know, I, uh, you know, shout out to Queen O. She is the person that narrated the, the audible, uh, version. Yeah. narrates it beautifully. Beautifully. She did a great job. Yeah. Uh, she introduced us. And so thank you so much, Queen. Um, yes. I reached out to her throughout the, as I was working, working through the book and listening and just texting her saying, I cannot believe a man wrote this. <laughs> and, and she said, this is what she said to me. That was, you know, um, she said, Fong's done the work mm -hmm. and the work is the processing of, I think what she means is the perspective of, of a woman. Yeah. And, um, you know, the ideas inside of these women and it, that for me probably takes a lot of courage to say you know i'm going to tell the story you know as a man to to take on that as a big uh task yeah i mean how did you that so i i think um you know that's one of the reasons why it was you know a long road is feeling as though i had um the right to tell their story for a variety of reasons um but um one thing that helped me access um their characters in the story was thinking them of them not from the outside and not like here are these women etc cetera, etc cetera, but here is Chung Chok, here is Chung Yi, they're individuals with selves and the consciousnesses and consciousness is not gendered, right? The experiences of, of women and men can be quite different um, as their lived experience, but in terms of the essence of the consciousness itself, there's nothing um, that uh, says this is the way that women think ultimately, this mm -hmm. is the way that men think ultimately. So thinking of them as individuals was um was key to um to writing this book and um creating their characters um and uh yeah in terms of representing the strength of the chung sisters uh part of that had to do with my own sense of the strength of women in my life and the women in public life and you know women um who for one reason or another 
uh, society and, you know, in American society, we still have not had a woman head of state. And, you know, people are overlooking and somehow blind to the strength and leadership of these great women leaders. And um, so part of the motivation for writing it as well was demonstrating how uh, powerful and great such leadership can be. And that brings me to this idea of using the word king throughout yeah. the novel. Can we talk about that? Why king and not queen? Yeah. Um, so um, the the the, uh, uh, the 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 name right Chung Vung means uh, the Shi King of the Viets, right? That that, and so um, the. Uh, it was just inherent, I think, in the language and in um, so uh, I, I perhaps there wouldn't have been an equivalent of, you know, a, a co-regent in, in the time. I'm not sure why the term king is so insisted upon, but it is in translations and in the histories of the Jung sisters. And so I was writing it, them as she kings instead of as queens because it was consistent with what I had been reading. Oh, interesting. How that's like baked into Chung Vung. Yeah. Vung is, is king, I'm, I'm assuming, right? Um, yeah, the, uh, the Chung, Chung Vung is, uh, yeah, the, the she king of the Viets is how it was shown to, to me. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, yeah, you don't hear these two described as Nu Huang, which is queens. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah, you hear Chung Vung. And it was very interesting because um, I it was it was a big question as I'm reading the book, yeah. constantly hearing uh, the the word king as we're describing uh, these these women. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Yeah, yeah. I mean, perhaps the, there, there's just no better word in English, right, um, to describe that their um, leadership, right, than than king. Uh, perhaps there could be a better one, but there isn't. Yeah, and that deliberate use of the word king is is uh, fascinating. And you know, I, I'm curious to hear what 
other people, how other people, you know, from now yeah. till, you know, in the next few years, how they react. And, you know, I, I look forward to sitting with other people at dinner to hear about their, their idea of like this use of the word king. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting because it's, it, it, uh, it was a clear choice at, at some point, but I, it wasn't one that I had thought of as being as giving particular weight only because it was what I had been reading in right. the history of the Chung sisters. Yeah. You um, address mental health in this book. Um, oh, I felt that. I felt that there was these ideas of, of mental health, like literally throughout the, you know, dropped throughout yeah, the yeah. book. And is that, was that a conscious decision or that's something that? It's fascinating. Um, uh, it is something that, um, you know, I have a family history of mental illness and things like that. So there's, um, it's uh, certainly something that's on my mind. Um, and, it, it wasn't necessarily um, something that I was putting as like, you know what I mean? A uh, like topic of the week kind of thing. It wasn't right. anything like that. It was just if, you know, the, the, its presence is probably there because it's such a big presence in my life. Yeah. Yeah. It's apparent, you know, uh, the consciousness of paying attention to the mental health of the characters it's it's really I, I picked up a lot of that in, in the book. I, I felt uh, this sort of uh, empathy throughout the story because, you know, there there is this focus on paying attention to the description of like how somebody's feeling. And then there is a reaction on somebody else's side to kind of yeah. like understand like, OK, you're going through this and it, it showed up and it's not it, it's, yeah, it wasn't yeah. uh, I, I couldn't ignore it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the, um, you know, it's most sort of on the surface with Ka, the guardsman, right at the yeah. end. And, um, uh, but, uh, th that's probably the, the point at which I was most conscious of writing about, um, you know, mental health, mental illness. And, um, but, uh, but yeah, once you pointed out, I can see it and it's, which is a wonderful thing. Um, I've already had that, you know, the book's only been out a week and I've already had that experience a couple of times where people point out things and I'm like, oh yeah, I hadn't really thought of that, but that's definitely on the periphery as I was writing, you know. Now, now this might be a random question or like just far out, but I'm just going to have to ask it. Yeah. Has this, the writing of the book, the researching of it affected in any way your relationship to uh, your wife, to your mother, to women in general? Um, that's a question probably best directed to my wife, <laughs> you know, but, uh, that's a good question. A very good question. I, I, I've noticed some, uh, you know, changes, um, but I, I don't know whether to attribute them to the writing of the book. You know, it wasn't like I would write a passage and then I would have this big breakthrough in my, uh, relationship or, or, or whatever, but it was, um, I think more, gradual and i should say this isn't the first time that i've written mm. about women from the perspective of women um so um uh so i i don't know if it's a sort of a much older development in my uh really history of my relationship but oh, makes sense um yeah no i that's a question for somebody who's more self-aware than i am i think <laughs> but but you just saying that shows how self-aware you are <laughs> 
Yeah. How, how much um, of Vietnamese do you understand the language? Do you speak it uh, fluently? No, um, no, I understand very little. I um, uh, tried to learn Vietnamese for traveling to Vietnam in 2007 with my father. And everywhere I went, people would look at me funny when I tried to pronounce something and then they would repeat it back to me correctly. And that that was, you know, um, so I, I work hard on pronunciation because I have to, of course, you know, pronounce the names as I read the uh, novel aloud in a various context, but it was actually very um, nice for me to hear the audiobook because her pronunciation is so perfect. And um, so I've actually been learning from that as well. Yeah, because because as I'm reading it, it felt like the, the you understood and you kind of understood the cultural nuances, but at the same time, it felt very Western. Yeah, yeah. So the um, you know, my father helped with um, some of those cultural nuances and with the um, diacritical marks and um, and those things. So it's the first of my books that I had my father read before you know submitting it and sending it on. It was um, that's not what I usually do with most of my my, my books. So, um, but uh, but yeah, it cannot help but be informed by um both the modern and the american context right and so um uh yeah so it's it's uh, reasonable that it would you would partake of both and you would experience both in the book how, how long did it take for you to write it i started so i started researching it maybe 2013 but not you know i was also writing other projects so i wasn't sort of doing that full-time or anything I started writing it in 2016. I completed it in 2020, and it's been kind of a two-year route to publication. So. Wow, it's almost 10 years. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, if you count that that sort of early research phase, then mm -hmm. yeah, almost 10 years. Yeah. What does it take for an artist, a writer, a musician, or somebody who's creating to stay on the path for that long? Because I'm sure, you know, as a creative, you have a lot of different ideas, a lot of different avenues that you can pursue. How does it, what does it take to stay on this one project? How do you do that? Yeah. Um, so uh, there's a quote, and I don't remember who, who it's from. We can look it up and add it in later. But the, uh, the author said that writing a novel is like having an empty swimming pool and going out every day with a cup of water to fill it. And so it, it's sort of, you have to trust in uh, gradualism. You have to trust in time and um, and how incremental progress can lead to an eventual uh, fulfillment. And um, I think that comes from a lot of practice where, you know, I, I, my first couple of books are collections of short stories. And, you know, short stories obviously are kind of sprinting rather than marathoning, mm. but, um, but you don't know that you're going to come out of it with a whole book of stories until you do. And then, you know, even though you had been doing these sort of shorter projects then eventually leads to this longer thing and seeing that, um, I think enabled me to realize that the same would be true of the novel except that you don't get those, um, uh, what do you call it? The instant gratification of 
you know, I'm going to publish this and then somebody's going to read it and then it's going to give me fuel to work on the next one. You know, that that has a much longer time horizon with the novel and you have to believe in a project for a lot longer. And um, for me, uh, I'm often driven by uh, voice. Uh, if there's a voice that I like to inhabit for long periods of time, then I don't mind the work at all. In fact, it can be a great pleasure and um, and which is not to say it's easy, but uh, but yeah, that kind of um, daily devotion to the task of writing comes from both practice and from um, uh, you know that uh, evidence of it working before. Are you a person who has a few projects working sort of in progress and then all of a sudden there's one with the voice cause out and you just go full steam yeah. or do you just latch onto one and then just really try to buckle down and finish it? You know, it used to be that I would work on multiple projects at the same time. More recently, I've been more focused on a single project. So it's changed and I'm, I'm open to, uh, you know, working on multiple projects simultaneously, but, uh, but for whatever reason, um, in the last, you know, probably since I started working on bronze drum, actually, um, it's been, uh, exclusively focused on a single project. That's like, uh, the mat maturing of an, of an artist, the muscle, the reps now. It's yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I think when I was working on multiple projects, it would often be because I'll be procrastinating for one project. And so I would move to the other one, you know, and it's still productive. It's just, you know, not productive towards finishing project A, you know. It's that endurance, right? Like uh, you're short on endurance, so you tap out and you just jump onto the other thing and, you know, yeah, nothing yeah. gets done. Right, right. <laughs> now, uh, speaking of rhythm, um, um, another thing that came up um, while I'm listening to to the book is the the idea of the drum patterns uh, from yeah, the yeah. bronze drum. Uh, was that historical uh, accurate, or did you kind of come up with that? So, um, you know, the obviously uh, the drums themselves uh, are still remain a, a powerful symbol. Um, but what they were used for is still there. They speculate that they were used for ritual for music and for military, but they don't know for sure that wow. they're used. And so uh, it, it, it worked best within the story for them to be used for all three purposes in terms of what the rhythms were. That's entirely my, you know, uh, invention because, um, they, you know, we, we cannot have known how, what the drum rhythms would have been. Um, and I had a little fun, a little bit with the onomatopoeia, right? The, the <laughs> make, trying to simulate the sound of drums through, you know, using a lot of different, uh, letters and different configurations. So what inspired this sort of, sort of idea of, you know, this, uh, audio sort of, um, rhythmic musical infusion into the story? Yeah. Um, it was, um, it was from that uh, speculation that it was used in military and uh, that it made sense to me that if it were used and for a military purpose, it wouldn't just be used the way that, you know, you have, you know, drums in like an old British military, which is just a kind of 
um, raise morale, but instead would be used to signal communicate. Yeah. And, um, and so uh, once you have this idea that the drums are there to communicate, then um, it becomes uh, a, a matter of how to get the whole army to cohere, right? And how it, to get it to move in synchronization. And, um, and so the training became less about the um, uh, sparring and the uh, the practice with the weaponry and more about uh, making sure the army is moving in sync. Is the bronze drum very specific to Vietnamese culture or does it exist in China and, and Korea and other cultures? Uh, so in uh, the southern China and northern uh, Vietnam, that, that, that Dong Song drum would, would appear, um, you know, in during and before this period, right? Um, so um, uh, I, I don't know beyond that, I, that, that I, whether it appears in, in other cultures, but that particular style and, um, and that particular shape and everything, I think is distinctly um, of Northern Vietnam. Yeah. Now, what are the next projects that you are working on, if you don't mind sharing? No, I don't mind sharing at all. And um, I'm working on um, a project right now, which I think will have both a nonfiction and a fiction component to it, which is writing uh, a family history. And um, it's surrounding an incident in 1947 when my father was three years old and there was a French air attack on the estate where they were living outside the city of Namding. And um, unfortunately, uh, his mother and his one-year-old brother were killed in the airstrike. And um, after that, in order to process his grief, my father's father wrote a letter to my father about who his mother was, about the incident itself, about his process of grief. And it, you know, he wrote it in French. It was translated into Vietnamese by his wife's family. It was kept in the family archives and my father never received it until 1982. And uh, he just happened to be visiting uh, a friend in uh, a family uh, friend in, in St. Louis who said, do you have a copy of the Le Livre de mon fils? And he said, I don't know what that is. And he said, it's a letter that your father wrote to you when, you know, after your mother died. And so he wrote to his contacts in Vietnam had the letter sent to him. He translated into English so that my mother could read it. And I read this letter almost by accident. And when I was 19 years old, my father, my mother was cleaning out some old papers and she said, Oh, you, know, you might be interested in this. And, you know, it's, I grew up in, a, a, you know, with my father not being very emotionally expressive. Um, but here's this deep emotion in this letter about something so critical to our family history. And I've, I wanted to write about it ever since. And um, so I plan to write a memoir about the journey of that letter and about, um, you know, my father's journey uh, to the U.S. and, um, and his parents, um, you know, in, in Vietnam. And I also plan to write a fictionalized version of this history 
uh, centered more around my grandmother and my imagining of who she was and her experiences. So, can you tell me a little bit about the content of the letter? Yeah. Um, so it first uh, very straightforwardly lays out the day, and so it was, uh, you know, a, a, I think June tenth of nineteen forty-seven, and um, and the this was like a retreat because they thought that the city of Namding would have been, you know, was, was be experiencing bombings and things like that. And so they had to flee from the city and they thought they were safe in this countryside uh, in the town called, uh, I'm going to mispronounce it, but I think Hall. Um, and uh, they were staying at this estate with a bunch of other families. And um, the, uh, and then he describes the, uh, the approaching, um, planes and how people didn't think that they were actually going to attack the estate because it was not a military uh, compound or anything. It was just, you know, a bunch of families living there. And so they fled the, the building because of the, they thought it would be bombed, but instead they kind of strafed the countryside. And my um, grandfather was holding my father, who was three years old at the time, and ran to this row of pines. And my grandmother was holding my uncle, who was 11 months old, and um, she was paralyzed with fright in the field and a single bullet went through the, uh, the baby's mouth and into the mother's heart and uh, the baby died instantly. And I think uh, my grandmother struggled a little bit with, uh, with before she died. And then, um, and then it writes about his grief and um, it writes about who she was and about how she was very she was all about family and um how she um uh loved games and how she uh you know really appreciated her close friends and and then it was about um uh so my my grandfather was an engineer a civil engineer and so he puts it in almost mathematical terms when he's writing about his grief and i wish i could remember or i could probably look it up but um, the, uh, the exact terms that he uses, um, because I don't know from math at all, but, you know, he uses these sort of mathematical terms, terms of it, like the derivative of our happiness is, you know, with wow. respect to zero something or, you know, and, um, so, but it's, it's beautiful despite it's sort of the, the, the use of math and stuff and that, um, and he talks about feeling like he'll eventually, um, you know, feel normal again, but he, his, his body and mind rebel against feeling normal again, because that means that, that his wife and his uh, son are diminished in his memory. And uh, so uh, it's a 30 page letter. Um, and uh, it's, um, it's been translated from in French to Vietnamese to English. So, um, uh, so the version that I have also has some little dot, dot, dots for when the, the, the written, you know, was not legible. Um, so, um, yeah, so I've, I've just been always fascinated with the journey of that letter and, of course, with um, my family history and what the effect of my father of growing up without um, uh, a, a mother. I mean, they, his father remarried, um, but um, she, she wasn't, didn't really pay that much interest in, in him. And, um, so, 
so yeah, that's some of the stuff that the book is going to be about or the books, plural. Beautiful. Um, it, it, it's like, I just want to stop the podcast right now and have you email it to me. It's how fascinating that, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it is because that letter, how long ago was it written? It was written in 1947. So, yeah. So that would have been, uh, I guess, uh, 75 years ago. Yeah. Cause my dad's 78. My maternal grandmother, there was eight siblings. Five of them died that way. Oh my goodness. Five of them died that way. French bombs. Yeah. yeah. And, and you think about the, the legacy of war and, you know, my, some of my friends and I were talking about this last night about epigenetics and how yeah. it gets really um into ourselves and you know whatever quantum theory or whatever yeah, yeah. we don't know about um it's a really tragic and traumatic uh chapter in, in the history of the vietnamese people but if it dates all the way 2000 you said 2000 years ago yeah 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 that's right um and uh it's um you know i have i when i when i visited Vietnam with my father, I was very surprised that um, the people that we met seemed to like America and Americans and didn't have any kind of the conflicted feelings that Americans have about Vietnam and didn't have any kind of the bitterness and resentment. I could have been just exposed to a very narrow segment yes. of the population that I don't know, but um, my sense of why that is and the explanation that was given to me by my father is well that you know they have, you know they have had you know these recent um conflicts with the u.s but the conflicts that with you know china run back thousands of years you know and so um you know the the it's got to be seen through this lens where this is a very kind of small um moment compared to the much longer history um I found the paragraph with the mathematical formulation, if you're interested in Please, that. yes. Can you read that? Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, it comes to show a happiness which is always there is not felt very much, and we do not feel as happy as at the beginning. So having a lot of happiness makes us take it for granted, and to state it clearly in mathematical terms, the happiness a person feels at a point in time is simply the derivative of the function of happiness with respect to time. This means the happy feeling does not vary as the magnitude of this happiness, but it varies as the rate of change of his happiness. When a person experiences a constant happiness, the derivative of that happiness with respect to time is zero, which means he's in a state of indifference, neither joyful nor sad. Therefore, the matter of happy feeling, which is mistakenly called happiness, is an internal matter depending only on one's own view of one's situation. Holy shit. 75 so, yeah. years ago. Yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, you know... Um, uh, engineer, you know, yeah. discovering his uh, poet soul. Yeah. That's mind blowing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is, um, yeah, I just remember reading this letters and, you know, and 19 years old, crying and thinking about how this, you know, the, my father is the person he is because of this experience, of course, and not just this experience, but, um, you know, it's uh, his earliest memory you know, three years old. My earliest memory is my dad singing to me, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> and your dad came to the United States when he was a young person. Yeah, yeah, he was 18. 
18 and he wasn't uh, in the military or didn't have to go through. So his sort of position and stance on, uh, you know, all of that trauma dodged it a little bit, right? He was able to kind of sidestep. Yeah, I mean, except for his, uh, you know, the, the, this childhood trauma and, right. and uh, experience. But so, yeah, he was in, uh, you know, for most of it, he was in Madison, Wisconsin. And then, you know, he moved to New Jersey where I grew up. But um, when he was in Madison, it was, you know, in the late 1960s. And there was some, uh, so he denies it now, but he's told me that there was pressure on him to become activist in the, you know, against the Vietnam War, but his position was very complex. You know, he, he thought that the Southwest should have been more supported through, you know, uh, money and weaponry and not with boots on the ground. Um, and he thought that Johnson was kind of a shoot from the hip cowboy type of uh, president. So, but more recently, when I've asked him about this, he's like, "No, there was no pressure on me at all to get involved with that." So I don't know what the, he, whether he's just trying to wave it away or or what. But. Yeah, you know, um, I I should look this up on Google, but I did I decided not to do it because I wanted to kind of yeah. hear it from from your explanation. It's f fairly simple to look up, but I wanted to hear uh, your you know the way you can explain it, um, yeah. the dates that are written uh, in the book. Uh, I can't remember the exact year, but it's like, let's say 2040 CE. Yeah. yeah. What, what is that? So the, um, the, uh, the dates that was well, CE is the common era. So like the, um, uh, the 36 CE was the first year. Um, and then, uh, so it spans from 36 to 43 CE. Uh, but the other uh, date is uh, a, a traditional Vietnamese calendar, uh, the lunar calendar. So it would have would have been it's much older than the um, calendar that uh, the Caesar, the, the the regular BC AD calendar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, no, CE and BCE are just the the same as uh, AD and 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 BC, but the um, the other uh, non Viet uh, uh, calendar. Lunar. Mm -hmm. was uh the tr traditional calendar at the time so so common era is uh, where is that i'm sorry yeah so yeah common era is just another way of saying ad so an anno domini or whatever mm -hmm. it's it's yeah. you know uh it's it's uh, it has to do with um the the christian um determination and ce is just a more scientific way of referring to ad so it's not based around a christian. single religious tradition yeah Ah, now okay. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that's what. So that's it's something very common in academia, but maybe not so much outside of academia. Yeah, I mean, it was the first time I saw, and I thought about googling it, but I'm like, no, I'd rather yeah, yeah. ask you about it and your decision to use CE and not AD or BC. Yeah, yeah. And was that something like a conscious decision to kind of leave that out? Or yeah, I mean, I didn't think it was unusual. I thought it was like uh, that. You know, I, I I remember using AD growing up, but I remember. Um, you know, sometime in college being told that AD isn't used anymore, that it's used CE instead. And so it's probably is still used. It's just, um, and maybe, uh, academic circles it's, so AD is not used anymore. So CE is the equivalent of AD. That's right. It's exactly the same thing. So, so common, wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. Common era is the day that Christ died. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. 
Anno Domini is the the year of the Lord, and it's right, right. you know any time after AD is af or is it after death? I, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah I, I think it is Anno Domini, but I, yeah, I, I don't know. It's not not my area of expertise. It's just a it was a, um, a choice based on um, what I assumed was the default. Yeah. Um, I want to circle back to the the novel. Uh, how has it been yeah. received in Vietnam? Um, so, so far, um, you know, it's only been out a week in the US and I've received some interest in having translation, um, but I, I, I still have yet to see how it will be received. I hope it will be received in the spirit of that, as I said, sort of the opening of a dialogue and, a, a, and not a version that replaces the traditional version of the story, right? Um, and so, uh, uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I think this verdict is still out on how it will be received. In yeah. Vietnam. I, I wonder what the sort of powers to be, you know, their reaction to the anti Han. Yeah. Know, yeah. You know, I wonder how that, because of their censorship sort of, they want to play, you know, nicely with the Chinese and, you know, wonder how that equation all, you know, works out. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I, I like to think that uh, Ma Yuan's portrayal is as a more sort of subtler and nuanced portrayal of uh, the Han Chinese character and, um, you know, not as villainous as, say, the commander, um, you know, or the governor. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think there's always that potential that um, because the Chung sisters enemy was the Han Chinese that for a variety of reasons and a variety of contexts, people might not, um, want to, um, promote or spread it around. I was thinking yeah. of like, you know, all these movie studios that uh, have to make different choices based on, well, this won't please play in China. China. Yeah. I won't play in China. So, um, so yeah, don't, don't expect it coming to a theater near you anytime soon. <laughs> if, you were to approach another myth or legend of folklore uh, in the same vein as uh, the Chung sisters, would you be able to do it quicker? Um, gosh, I hope so. Um, but I don't know if I would. I think I wouldn't probably because every book that I've written is a departure from the other mm -hmm. books. It's, it's always something different. And so it has to have something really new to it in order for it to excite me. And so um, I, I, I can't imagine kind of repeating myself and writing sort of the same or, 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 you know, a different legend, but in the same way. So I would have to find a new way to tell that story. And so it probably would take me as long. Yeah. Well, I uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, the bronze drum and I, hope that we get a lot of people to read the book and ultimately to have the book turn into a more TV episodic or, or something that we can visually consume. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that would be great. Um, I'd love to see it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a story that was important to me and, 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 um, I, I am glad that it can be important to others as well. Thank you for bringing it to life and thank you for sharing your time with me today. Absolutely. Thank you for this uh, broadcast and for this conversation. Thanks, Bob.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. <laughs> 